just going to let them get out of here. And we've got front lines coming up with Bibles. If you need one, please stick up your hand. And if you don't currently own a Bible, um, please take this home as a gift from us to you. Today we are reading John 1, 1934. And if you're following along with us, that's going to be, I believe it's on page 886. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? Who need to give an answer? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jerusha. Morning, everyone. My name is Spencer Adams. I get to be the pastor of Missional Living for Church of the City, and this morning I get to uh, open God's Word with you. Something that some of you will know about me, some of you may not, is that I love board games. Most board games, not all board games, you'll probably have one of your favorites and you'll come up and talk to me about it afterwards and I won't like it, but I like a lot of them. Uh, is anybody else in that camp with me, a board game uh, fans? Keep your hand up if you like hidden role games. So these are the kind of games where you know, may, you know who you are in the game and maybe some of the other people, but other people you're uncertain of them. Okay, yes. Uh, Esther, who's here, I think, and is in, she's in the back there and is in my missional community. She loves board games even more than I do. But she does not like the hidden role ones. She, she says that they just like stress her out. And I know other people who feel the same way. Uh, but one of the worst possible things that can happen to you in one of these hidden role games is when you're going along and you're so uh, engaged in the game trying to figure things out that maybe without even realizing it, you forget who you are. Has that ever happened to anybody in one of these games? You get so lost in your own head that you forget which character or role you're actually playing. And sometimes you go whole turns or rounds without realizing you've done that. And then it kind of hits you, oh, I'm sh- shoot, I'm playing as the wrong person. And then you've got to try and recover. And it's usually a big mess. It's one of the worst things that can happen to you. 
I think in our text this morning that we're going to look at, John wants to impress upon us how important it is for us as followers of Jesus to remember who we are, and actually to remember who we are not, and also to remember who Jesus is. Our text this morning wants to show us who we are and help us remember who we are, who we aren't, and who Jesus is. So that's where we're going this morning, but before we do that, as Matt always asks us to do, I would invite you to pause, see how you're feeling. Dallas Willard says that messengers make terrible masters, but really good messengers, and sometimes we need to listen to our emotions to understand what's going on. So pause for a second, uh, see how you're feeling, invite the Holy Spirit into that place, and then I'll pray and we'll get going. So Jesus, as, as we hoped to do last week, uh, I pray that again today we would see you more clearly through our time in uh, John's gospel, but also that as we see more clearly who you are, that we would understand clearly who, who we are and who you've created us to be. That's our prayer this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So if, uh, if you've been away for a little while, or maybe this is your first Sunday with us last week, we started a brand new series that we're going to be going on for quite a while in the Gospel of John. Just, uh, we'll just be kind of trucking along verse by verse, chapter by chapter for much of this year, actually. So it's going to be a deep dive. And on that note, I would highly recommend that you grab one of these journals. If, uh, I mean, maybe if you hate writing, then it's not for you, but uh, uh, they are a really great tool. Sam got me actually a set uh, a couple years ago as a gift, and I've been working my way through the New Testament with them, and they're really great. And so, we're going to be spending months in the Gospel of John, so that would just be a way for you to journal your own thoughts, follow along with sermons, so I would highly recommend that you grab one of those. Certainly, you need to have some way of following along with the text, whether that's on your phone, on a, uh, a hard copy Bible, or through one of those journals. So I just wanted to make that Strong recommendation. So revisiting what Matt opened up for us last week, John, uh, in writing his gospel, later on, gives his purpose in writing. He gives it to us in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this, that you would believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so it's so important today and in the weeks and months ahead that we keep that at the forefront, that that was John's purpose and goal in writing. Now, I know some people like an outline when we get started. I usually like to give an outline when I'm speaking. So interestingly enough, John, the writer, actually gives us our outline for this morning's message, but he gave it to us a few verses ago, and we saw it, we read it last week, talking about John 1, verses 6 to 8. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Here, John, the writer, is talking about John the Baptist. Yes, slightly confusing. I will come back to this in just a moment. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And verse 8, specifically, is our outline for this morning. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Our text this morning, you may have noticed, actually spans two days. 
uh, one of the verses kind of serves as the turning point where it says the next day. And these two days follow what verse 8 talks about. John saying, hey, I'm not the light. I'm not the one. And then day two is, here's Jesus. Jesus is the one. And so that's really our outline for this morning. Uh, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And so that little point of clarification about the two Johns. And this is important because John the Baptist uh, is going to pop up a number of times throughout the Gospel of John. So it's worth making a clarification now. John, who Matt introduces to, the writer of this Gospel, one of the disciples, part of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John, uh, scholars, as they're writing commentaries and things, and I think Matt did this last week, and I'll do this today, refer to him as John the Evangelist, okay? So the writer of the gospel this morning, we're going to call John the Evangelist. And John the Evangelist, this morning in the text that we're looking at, talks a lot about John the Baptist, who we will call John the Baptist, okay? Uh, So just, we'll kind of move back and forth between what John the Evangelist was writing and what he was trying to capture what John the Baptist was saying in his ministry, okay? So I'll try and use the full title where it might be confusing to kind of bring some clarity, okay? Tracking with me on that? I know it's, it's somewhat conf- confusing. Give me one of these or like a, if, if, if you totally lose me, or maybe not the thumbs down. Um, that, I, that, that would be hard for me, so. Some, some way, maybe a comment card. Maybe that would be a good comment. Um, okay, let's dive into the verses that Jerusha read for us. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, one feature about John's gospel is he is the gospel writer who more than any of the others uses this uh, somewhat more ambiguous title, the Jews. The other gospel writers often are more specific or just give some more context. And so it's important for us to remember because we're going to see this title Uh, this uh, address of the group of people called the Jews used more often. And it's important for us to remember that not all Jews throughout Jesus' ministry were opposed to his ministry. Jesus himself was a Jewish man and many Jews listened and followed him. So it's it's helpful, I think, for us to be a little bit more specific in what John's talking about. And when he uses this term, usually he's talking about the religious elite there in Jerusalem, the center of, of of the Jewish world, of Jewish power. And so a delegation is sent from this center of power out from Jerusalem, out to where John the Baptist is ministering out in the countryside. Now, They come, this delegation comes out from Jerusalem with a question, and the question is, who are you? Now, as I read this, it feels like a power trip in the making. Do do you see what I'm saying? It feels as though they're opening the door for John the Baptist to really kind of pump his tires, right? When when, uh, a group is sent from any sort of center of power in our world, whether it's a government center of power or cultural power, and they come with the question, hey, who are you? Usually it means that this person is, people are taking notice, right? I I was sitting at my desk thinking about an example, and I think this happens more than ever maybe in our world today where someone can, you know, publish something online or release some music from their bedroom and then all of a sudden everybody's heard of them and everybody's asking the question, who are you? One example from uh, the recent past would be Billie Eilish, right, who I think just in the last like year, hardly any more than a year, started just releasing music, her and her brother from their bedroom at their, their parents' house, and then this year they just raked in the Grammys. 
And one article title online was, that was published by Vox was titled, Who is Billie Eilish? This is from like nine months ago or something. The neo-goth chart-topping teenage pop star explained. That's quite a run-on title there. But you know if someone publishes an article about you on a, on a sort of popular online publication asking, who is Billie Eilish, that you're making waves, right? Are you tracking with me a little bit? You're, you're doing something that people are taking notice of. And so we're kind of teed up for this kind of a dramatic moment here in the text. Similar to last week, as Matt showed us, the way that John the Evangelist, the writer, builds up in his prologue to this dramatic unveiling of the person of Jesus, right? Do you remember that from last week? He's, he's given us these details and we're asking, who is this? Who is this? And then we have this unveiling of Jesus. We feel like, you know, maybe we're going to see something similar here, but we do not get at all what we're expecting. Look at verse 20. This moment where we could have this dramatic reveal, they come and ask, who are you? It says in verse 20, he confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Confessed, did not deny, but confessed. I love the way that John the Evangelist writes that. It's almost like, I almost read that as though he's kind of amused. It's like he's saying, get this, here's what he said. He actually said this. And what does John the Baptist say? I'm not the Christ. Sorry. He, just to give a clarification here, if you are new to the scriptures or something, and I think for some who maybe have not spent many time in the scriptures, it's easy to think that Jesus Christ is the full name of Jesus. Christ is actually a title. So John the Baptist is not saying, you know, this isn't a case of like mistaken identity. They're like, hey, are you that Jesus Christ guy? No, 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 that's somebody else. No, uh, he's, what John is saying is, I am not the Christ. And so you're probably asking the question, what, what does that title mean, the Christ? The Christ, or Christ, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Messiah was this figure that uh, the Jewish people were looking for, were expecting, were longing for. He was to be the anointed one sent by God to rescue and restore the Jewish people. The Messiah was going to come from the line of David, and there was this expectation about the significance of this person when they were to come. And so, recognize then, in John clarifying, I am not the Christ, recognize what a significant impact his ministry must have been having for him to have to say that. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Rec- obviously, he is doing some big things out there in the countryside to need to clarify, I'm not the one that our people are longing for and expecting and looking for. Matthew, in his gospel, gives a little bit more of the context of John's ministry that helps us see maybe why John clarifies who he is not. Matthew says uh, in his gospel, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John is doing some significant ministry out there in the countryside, and so he clarifies, I'm not the Christ. But he's not done with his denials yet. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, nope. So it's, it's, it's as though this delegation has the big one out of the way, right? Okay, you're not the Messiah. You're not the, the expected one. Well, what about Elijah? Now again, if you've spent some time in the scriptures, maybe you've heard that name or read about Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, but you might be asking, why, why are they asking him if he's Elijah when he was a character from hundreds of years before? Well, 
This question is, is born out of uh, a different prophet, uh, Malachi, in, his, uh, in the book that's now titled after him, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where he prophesies this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're thinking, okay, so maybe if you're not the Messiah, the Christ, maybe you're one that's going to kind of uh, introduce him or, or, or preempt him in some way. And he says, no, I'm not. So they try another approach. Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Now you might be asking, okay, who are they talking about there? What, what figure are they referencing? A little bit more ambiguous than Elijah well, this goes back to Deuteronomy 18, 18, where God is speaking to Moses, and he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, like, again, like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So let's pause for a second and put on our uh, biblical scholar caps for just a moment, okay? John the evangelist is giving us some hints here, right? So Deuteronomy 18, 18, uh, part of it says, I will put my words in his mouth. What was the, the title that prior to that unveiling last week in the prologue, John gave to this person that was eventually revealed to be Jesus? Do you remember the title that he assigns to him? The Logos, the Word, right? The Word. And so I think John is helping us to see maybe who that prophet figure is. I will put my words in his mouth. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is this prophet. So before we move on, final note to just add an extra layer of confusion into the whole thing. Again, if you've spent some time in the Gospels, you may remember that later on in his ministry, Jesus actually says that John the Baptist is this Elijah figure. Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14 says, and this is Jesus speaking. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. A little confusing, right? We're asking ourselves now, is there a conflict here? Like John the Baptist says he's not this Elijah figure. And then Jesus says that he is. How do we reconcile that? Well, scholars take different approaches. But mine is this, and, and this isn't a novel view. John's, John the Baptist's humility in this moment is so significant that he actually fails to see the significance of who he is in the eyes of Jesus. John the Baptist's humility in this moment is so great that he actually fails to see the significance of who he is in Jesus' eyes. One commentator that, that uh, takes this approach is Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary, and this is what he says. I have a little difficulty reconciling the two, the two being how do we understand that Jesus says that he is Elijah and John says that he's not. I have little difficulty reconciling the two. Christians often, to their credit, do not realize who they really are in Jesus' eyes. And thank goodness, right? Thank goodness that we don't see all the ways that God is using us in the world, that so often that remains a mystery to us, right? We have conversations with people, we, we you know, do things, and God uses them in ways that we don't ever know. And I think that's his grace, right? Imagine if we saw that and we would instantly, at least me, I, I tend towards a pretty prideful position. I think I'd feel pretty good about myself, you know? But uh, God, just in his grace, doesn't always allow us to see that. And I think we see a... a, a uh, a clear picture of that in this moment with John the Baptist. So, 
In these first few verses, we see a beautiful picture of Christian humility, made all the more powerful when we recognize the significance of the ministry that John was having out there in the desert. But he doesn't just make denials. John the Baptist actually does affirm some things about who he is. Look at verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So again, we now make a shift to John making some positive statements about who he is, some some affirmations. And friends, we cannot, we cannot miss the significance of this, the way John the evangelist is telling us this. As human beings, and I think particularly as followers of Jesus, a crucial part of understanding who we are is understanding who we are not. Let me say that again. I think as followers of Jesus, but really just as human beings in general, a crucial part of understanding who we are is knowing who we are not. You tracking with me? We need to know who we are not in order to know who we are. To be released from those expectations, the weight of those things, us taking on roles and identities that aren't meant for us. Let's keep going. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The religious leaders at this point are out of guesses, right? We get the sense that they're like exhausted or something. Please tell us, who are you? And John says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Even John's affirmation of who he is feels like a humble one, doesn't it? I'm just a voice. A a prophesied voice, yes, but a voice. John's talking about Isaiah 40, verse 3, where the prophet Isaiah says, uh, A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So notice this, John the Baptist does still recognize his place in the story of God. We, you will hear Matt and I and others talking often about this grand massive story of God that began at creation and is still ongoing and that you and I are a part of. And John understands his place in the story of God and that he has a role to play. He simply feels no need to overstate that place or that role. So what does it mean then when John says, make straight the way of the Lord, tapping into Isaiah's words from years and years earlier? What does that mean, make straight the way of the Lord? John's inviting us to clear a path for Jesus in our lives. Back to uh, Frederick Bruner in his commentary. This is what he says. Make straight the way of means in contemporary American English, be straight with, be honest to, And it's the way of the Lord to us that we are to make straight. Be straight with, be honest to. And friends, I think this is true for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus and those who are still skeptical about all of this. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, Jesus is our Lord. He is our King. And he demands rule and reign over the whole territory of our lives. And so it's our responsibility to clear the way for him, to have access and lordship over each and every part of our lives. As Matt talked about last week, how we deal with our money, how we think about our relationships, how we parent. Jesus has lordship over all of it. All of it. So we need to clear a path. But also, I think this, is, this just as much applies to those who are in a place of skepticism about Jesus, about Christianity, about all of this. 
you need to give an honest appraisal to this person of Jesus. As Matt said last week, he's, he's one of three things. He's based on all the things that Jesus said, either he's lying, right? He's just a bold-faced liar. Or he's a lunatic. He's completely crazy and believe these things, but they weren't true. Or the third option is they are true. And in which case, he ought to be your Lord as well. And you need to sort through for yourself which of those he is. In other words, you need to clear a path. You need to be straight with Jesus to sort that out for yourself. Let's keep going. We're moving fast this morning. John crams a lot into short passages, okay? Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Notice this is John the Evangelist giving us this little aside. Verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So again, John the evangelist, the writer, gives us this little aside about some more specifics of who this group, this delegation is. Now the Pharisees were the most serious of the the Jewish religious parties there in Jerusalem. And so it makes sense that they would take the greatest offense at what John the Baptist is doing and teaching out there in the countryside. A little bit of background for you. Baptism in the Jewish faith at that point was usually reserved for Gentiles converting into Judaism. Baptism was was reserved for Gentiles converting into the faith. But John the Baptist is saying that even those who, you know, by all appearances should be ceremonially clean, i.e. the Jewish people, still need to repent and be baptized, still need to be washed And so it's a challenge. It's a direct challenge to the Pharisees. And so the question is kind of going from an inquiring one, like, hey, who are you? To like a, who are you? Who do you think you are? It goes from a question of identity to one of authority. So you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the right to be saying these things? And again, again, feels kind of like we're primed for a power trip, right? John could launch into, hey, do you know how many baptisms I've done in the last month? Do you know how many people have been out here? Do you know how many of your own sort of religious groups have been coming out to hear what I'm saying? Like, we're ready for that, at least on on a purely human level. You know, the things that we see, the interactions online happen all the time, like, that would sort of be what we would expect, right? What gives you the right? We expect John the Baptist to launch into some sort of defense of himself, But again, that's not really what we get. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist is acknowledging that in and of himself, he has no authority. And what he does, baptizing with water, is a human endeavor. But what he does isn't out of his own authority. He works for another. And he's saying, you don't know who he is yet, but you're going to. Very soon you're going to know who he is. And friends, this is terribly important, I think, for all Christians everywhere to remember. Because we as believers do a lot of things. A lot of things we do regularly. You come and we often hear Matt teach. You know, on the one hand, we could say, yeah, that's just a person, Matt, uh, up here talking. This is just me up here talking. We, we, many of us gather together in DNAs every week where we open the scriptures together, we pray for each other, but yeah, sure, that's people getting together and, and reading. 
um, potlucks that we at Church of the City love so much. Um, you know, on the one hand, that's just people getting together and eating food. Uh, but I hope you know that we don't actually think it's just those things. Because it's, it's when we use those opportunities, those moments, those rituals to point to Jesus that they have power and that transformation happens. Are you following with me? Those things in and of themselves, yeah, they're, they're human things, but God uses them. Jesus shows up. Look at verse 28. Uh, John, the evangelist, the writer, again, gives us this sort of aside. He says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. All I want to say about this verse is never forget when we're reading the Gospels. Yes, John gives us this grand sort of theological prologue, but these Gospels were, were real events happening in real time and space, right? And John says, uh, yeah, by the way, um, these things took place in Bethany, and, and he says, Bethany across the Jordan. There was another Bethany closer to Jerusalem. It's like he's saying, these things happen in Bethany, not, not the Jerusalem one, the other one, the other Bethany. It's people are, the readers would be like, oh, okay, the other Bethany. Um, they, the gospel writers give us these real-life details, and we'll see a few more before we're done this morning. Verse 29, the next day, remember I said this passage falls over two days, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Again, this is John the Baptist. And said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now John the Baptist is actually seeing Jesus approaching him. Though in the day before he says, one stands among you. Most scholars say that Jesus probably wasn't actually there in that moment. Jesus, or John was talking about Jesus' sort of pre presence in the world, in that region. Like he's a real human being. He's alive. Um, whereas in this moment, John is saying, you know, behold, like he sees Jesus walking towards him. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. Now that's an interesting title, right? Maybe if you've spent time in the scriptures, you're thinking of some different things that John might be referencing there. Maybe if you've never spent any time in the Bible, you're like, what, what on earth does that mean? John is weaving together here all of these strands of Old Testament uh, moments and stories and, and teachings and prophecies. And we could, I said to Matt, I was like, Matt, I could have done a whole sermon just on that. Um, that's how John the evangelist writes his gospel, makes it very hard to teach long passages. Um, but just to give us a couple points to anchor ourselves with, what does John mean when he says the Lamb of God? Well, one of the primary motifs or pictures that he's pointing back to is this figure that, going back to Isaiah again, that Isaiah painted for the Jewish people that, that scholars have come to call the suffering servant. And he talks about this character primarily in Isaiah 53. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then look down a little bit. I think this passage is on the, sc on the screen there. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Behold, the Lamb of God. Another moment uh, in the Old Testament that John's drawing on and that maybe you're thinking of is from Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. Yet another moment, Genesis 22, this ram that God provides Abraham in the place of his son, Isaac. 
All and, and many more. Again, we could talk about this all morning. Um, but John, in this title, Behold, the Lamb of God, is, is saying no small thing. But what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is hard. This is hard for believers, for us to acknowledge that we need this. And I think it's particularly hard for, for many who are not followers of Jesus to recognize that, that we are all participants in what is wrong with the world, right? I mean, I have a hard time acknowledging that. This idea of sin, that we have wronged each other, that we've wronged God, is, is hard. But notice that John the Baptist, the day before, was getting us ready for this. See, when he says, make straight the way of the Lord, he was preparing us for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because if you aren't willing to be straight with Jesus and yourself, actually, about, like I said, participating in the injustice that goes on in the world every day, if you aren't willing to be straight with Jesus and yourself about those things, you'll never be able to acknowledge that you have sin that needs dealing with let alone that you can't deal with it yourself. John was trying to get us ready for this, make straight the way of the Lord so that we could then reconcile with the Lamb of God needing to take away the sin of the world. The the good person will find John the Baptist's words either nonsensical, what does that mean, the sins of the world? Like what what on earth is he talking about? Or offensive, right? Right? Yeah, you just won't be able to grapple with that until you've accepted that you need to clear a path for Jesus and try and reconcile with who this person is. But also notice the way that John the Baptist says that. He says, takes away the sin of the world. See, if we think about where we are in the gospel narratives here, at the very start of Jesus' ministry, in some ways before Jesus has even started his ministry, we might expect John the Baptist to say, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, right? We're still before the, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So why does he say it this way? Takes away the sin of the world. Who here has been through one of our pilot groups or is in our current pilot group? Okay, a few hands. Cool. Uh, this will be hopefully uh, jogging to your memory, and Matt has talked about this as well. Um, we talk at, at one point in the pilot group about how the gospel is salvation in three parts. That yes, when you put your trust in Jesus, you know, when you were 11 or six months ago or whenever it was, you were uh, forgiven. Your, the, the penalty of your sin was taken away. And also as believers, we have this future hope that one day Jesus is going to return and restore all things, and sin will just be a memory, right? We'll be freed from the presence of sin. But there's also this middle reality to the gospel, this present reality, that sin still has uh, a part in our lives. I don't know about you, but I have not yet woken up uh, on any day and been perfect. A perfect husband, a perfect dad, um, although, you know, yeah. It got so close some days, but just didn't quite get there. Right, right, Sammy? Um, so close. Uh, there's a present need for the power of the gospel in our lives, and I think that's what John the Baptist is trying to remind us of. Which is why I said that we as believers need to be straight with Jesus, for sin still has areas of control over us. And so I take hope in what John said, you know, 
behold the Lamb of God who day by day takes away the sin in me. He goes on in verse 30, and he's kind of building to this crescendo in this day, this section of our passage. This is he of whom I said, oh, sorry, not quite there yet. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist is wanting to be perfectly clear with us, right? He's saying, remember what I said yesterday? Uh, After me comes one who ranks before me, the whole sandals thing. This is who I was talking about. This person right here, Jesus. And in another sort of interesting display, beautiful display of humility, John acknowledges in verse 31, I didn't, I myself didn't know him at first. I didn't recognize that this was the person that I was put on this earth to prepare the way for. I missed it. John's acknowledging that though his calling in life was to prepare the way for Jesus, he missed him at first. He needed outside help to see who Jesus was. And again, I take great hope in this. I think this should be an encouragement to those of us who love Jesus, are followers of Jesus, and want those around us to discover for themselves who Jesus is, right? It's easy to find that difficult. As Tamson said, like, how do we go about that? What What do we say? What do we do? And it's, it's beautiful to have this encouragement that even John the Baptist missed who Jesus was at first, right? And so we can, we can keep at it. We can keep going at this, knowing that God's in control, he's got the power, and he'll open people's eyes as, as he does. And I think it should also be an encouragement for anyone here who is on this journey of trying to, to be straight with Jesus, trying to clear a path for him to just give him an honest appraisal and you're just not seeing it. I would say to you as well, keep at it. This figure who John the evangelist puts front and center at the start of the gospel as this key witness to who Jesus is, missed it at first. Missed it. So keep at it. Have another look would be my encouragement to you. Then verse 32 and 33, this is the crescendo. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So unlike the other gospels which actually take us to the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist here is retelling. As he sees Jesus, he's retelling what he saw at the baptism. And he says that the spirit descended and remained on Jesus. And I think, friends, that it's no mistake that all of the gospel writers point to that moment as the start of Jesus' ministry. Again, Matt has said this before, but I think it bears reminding because I think it's a common misunderstanding amongst followers of Jesus that Jesus did all the things that he did in the gospels simply because he was God, right? Well, how did he turn water into wine as we're going to see soon? Well, because he was God. How did he, how did he heal people? All these things. Well, he was God. Easy answer. I don't think that's what the gospel writers want us to, to see. I think they are wanting us to see a man who did the vast majority of things that he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. A human being filled with the Holy Spirit who did miraculous things. Yes, there are moments, I think particularly in John's gospel, where he wants us to see that Jesus did something where it was unmistakable that this was God in flesh. But very often, we're simply seeing a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel writers point to this moment as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
And remarkably, friends, later on in John's gospel, we are given the same promise by Jesus himself. John 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. We're given that same promise that the spirit will come to us and remain with us, will abide with us. And so John the evangelist is here capturing this moment uh, of John the Baptist's words and together these two figures are laying out powerful truths of who Jesus is. Here's, I, I tried to write this in a simpler way, but sometimes the gospel, you just can't simplify it anymore. Jesus, as our substitutionary sacrifice, the Lamb of God, takes away our sin and by washing us clean through his death, allows us to be raised to life by his spirit dwelling in us. And this too, friends, is a once and for all and ongoing reality just like the need for our sins to be taken away. This is once and for all and ongoing. Though our receiving the Holy Spirit when we believed in Jesus was a, a permanent sign of our forgiveness, so too, day by day, we need the Spirit's presence with us, giving us life to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to put to death the things uh, of the flesh. We need the Spirit's life in us day by day. And then finally, verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is this crowning final declaration. Scholars call it a royal declaration. John the Baptist is saying, this person that I've been talking about, he's the one we've been looking for. He's all of these things, and he's actually God's son. And so if we're to summarize this whole day two, this whole narrative, as John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him, he says, this, this one, this man, is, he's the, the man coming after me. He's truly human. He affirms his, his humanity. He's the one we've been waiting for, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Messiah. And actually, he is the Son of God. He is divine. Whoa. Like in these few sentences, John the Baptist gives us this full Christology, which is just theological speak for who is Jesus. And John gives us a grand one in just a few sentences. So as we finish our time together here, how do we take this and allow it to change us as we go from this place? If you've been around Church of the City for a while, if you're in a DNA group or you've been joining with us at our reunion gatherings, you've probably heard about the four questions. Uh, the four questions are in this order, who is God and what has God done? And in light of that, who am I and how should I live? And we spend all this time on the four questions, not just to remind us of who we are, but also to remind us of who we are not. Right? Are you tracking with me? Because in reminding ourselves of who God is, often we find the freedom, oh, thank goodness, that's who God is. I don't need to be that. So my question to you uh, before we go, one of two, is are you trying to take on any identities or roles that you need to let go of? An example that I am constantly coming back to in my own life, Sam, my wife, is uh, an Enneagram 2, which is a helper, uh, and she loves to help. 
Like if she hears of a way that she can be of service to someone, um, pots will be left on the stove and she will be there helping. Um, sometimes even if she's not at all qualified to help in that way, um, she's there. And sometimes out of her desire to do good for people, to, to, to be present with people, she's left with nothing for herself. You know, she's just like overwhelmed. Um, she would say that. I, I'm, not, I'm not betraying her confidence, I don't think. And in those moments, too often, I find myself showing up and saying, don't worry, Sam, I will refresh you. I will be the restorer of your soul. I will bring you back to fullness and health. And shockingly, someone here uh, recognized probably how well I do at that. Um, and God in his graciousness, um, a few years into our marriage now, is pointing out to me that I don't need to be that for Sam. Uh, Jesus is. Jesus is the restorer of her soul. Jesus is the well that will never run dry. Jesus is uh, our, our perfect friend, our older brother. Jesus is all of those things, and I don't need to be. I get to be her husband and love her as best as I can, as imperfectly as I often do. So I need to let go of that. That is not my role. And so, friends, it's only when we know the boundaries of who we are and who we're not that we can truly flourish and allow God his rightful place and role in our lives. Just understand what I'm saying? It's only when we understand where those boundaries are, who we are and who we're not, that we're going to flourish and that we're going to allow God to be God in our lives. Second question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is, are you being straight with Jesus? Because there might be some of us here, follower of Jesus or not, who need to do that work of clearing away the obstacles so that Jesus has the opportunity to, uh, for you to be straight with him and him to be straight with you and him to reveal himself to you. If not, we will never accept the weight of our sin. We'll never accept that we are a part of the things wrong with the world and that we need someone to help us deal with that. And I don't think we'll ever experience the absolute like joyful freedom that I think John the Baptist did through knowing perfectly who he was, who Jesus is, and not needing to be more, not needing to be any less, but being able to just be in that lane. I think we see in John the Baptist a wonderful freedom and blessedness. So that's my hope and prayer for us. I want to close with this. I, Sam and I have a verse for our family. It's Psalm 34, verse 3. And it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let's exalt his name together. And that's our hope for our family. It's our hope in our relationship to each other, our relationship with our friends, with uh, our kids, with our neighbors, whoever, is that when people interact with us, they get this sense of who Jesus is and of Jesus' goodness and his generosity and his love for us. I think we see that in John the Baptist and as we do this work, friends, I think Others will see it uh, in us. They'll stop seeing us and they'll start seeing more of Jesus. We're going to pray. And then, actually, I'm going to go ahead and invite the, the band back up. Um, in just a moment, we're going to pray. But while we're singing, as Matt has been saying the last couple weeks, we have realized that, you know, coming up here to pray um, just, you know, creates some barriers for people. Uh, so we've made a little space at the back there. Um, behind the curtains in that back corner for you to go and pray with someone if you'd like to do that. And I would inv invite you, friends, like to honestly consider right now 
uh, in the next few minutes if that way is clear for Jesus. Uh, and if not, I'd invite you to go pray with someone um, so that you can honestly consider who he is and that he desires to take away the sin that's holding you down, the weight that you're carrying around. The goal of us acknowledging our sin is not guilt and shame. It's actually the exact opposite, that we can be freed from those things knowing that Jesus has taken them on on our behalf. Let's pray together. Jesus, as I was last week, I'm I'm overwhelmed by what these verses teach us about who you are. Uh, Both the the simple reality that you walked among us as a human being, but uh, you were also the Lamb of God sent to bear our sin and shame on our behalf so that we could live lives of, of freedom and of love, love for you and love for others. I'm just overwhelmed by you, Jesus. I pray that f- for those of us, and I think this is true of each of us in different ways, there are parts or areas in our life where we allow obstacles to remain, uh, whether that's pride or whether that's our accomplishments, our goodness, uh, whatever it may be, that prove to be obstacles to you so that the way is not clear. Would you point out those things to us? Would we be willing uh, to partner with you in moving those obstacles away so that we can allow Jesus to be Lord, to see him for who he truly is, uh, and to love him as as Lord and Savior over our lives. Pray this all in the good name of Jesus. Amen.